Good morning. It's lovely to be here. And um, if we had two or three hours, we might do justice to this topic. So what I'm going to try and do is set up a very quick recap on how we come to be where we are, and then to think a little bit about what that means for us and what we can do. And as Mike says, I am very happy at the end of this, if we have a few minutes, if there are things I've said that you don't understand or that you would wish to contest, please um, put a hand up and we can carry on the dialogue. And when the clock runs out, I will be happy to stay on at the end and have a coffee if you'd like to continue the conversation. So where might we begin? Um, Mohammed is the single word where I would begin. Now, I could think of the Mohammed, who was the prophet, who in 622 died, and following which the house of Islam split into Sunni and Shia. And I'm not going to go into the reasons for that, but that enmity has been a cause of problems in the Middle East ever since. Sometimes it is quite peaceful, under the radar screen, Recently, it has broken out afresh in stark terms. And we have to understand that split, as I will explain in a moment. But there is another Muhammad who is more important. Tariq al-Tayyab Muhammad Bouazizi. You may not remember his name. He was a Tunisian street vendor. And he set himself alight in December 2010 in protest against municipal officials, which led to protests right across the Middle East, what we romantically called the Arab Spring. Well, it turned out to be not romantic at all. People were very enthused at the prospect of overthrowing really nasty dictators, of whom, of course, Saddam Hussein was probably the worst. The thing was, these dictators had control in countries which were riddled with factions, cultural, ethnic, religious, and so on. And having been overthrown, there were no institutions to replace them. There was no history of democracy. There was no history of what we would call national government. There was a vacuum. And in the vacuum, chaos began to rule and violent anarchy took over in Tunisia, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, and beyond. Next. If you think of this as a ball of string, which the cat has played with, that's the way you think about the Middle East. I have been visiting the Middle East for many, many years, and recently in Tear Fund, the Middle East has completely overtaken our focus. Perhaps even five years ago, it was not a major focus for our poverty relief, our church development, or our disaster response. Now it must be 40-50% of what we do. And I have come to understand how complex is this situation. In the Middle East, your friend is your enemy, your enemy is your friend. It all depends. Everything depends. In this chart, 
the authors have excluded Israel and Palestine to simplify the complexity of the relationships. Well, I'm not sure your reaction. I don't find this simple. Let me just say that very simply in Syria today, you have the last remaining major dictator, Assad, and you have forces unleashed since 2010 which seek to overthrow him. He's clinging on to power and he is supported by Putin. There is a civil war going on in the country and the United States, with its allies, including the UK, are fighting to support the opposition. There are at least 100 different militias operating in different parts of the country, each with their own objectives, some of which are about religious influence, some of which are simply a land grab. Sunni are fighting Shia, and everybody notionally is fighting ISIS. But of course, ISIS moves around. Now, I haven't mentioned what the Kurds are doing, what Al-Qaeda is doing, what Turkey is doing, and what Saudi Arabia is doing. Let me just say, it's a complete mess. Next. There are about 1.6 billion Muslims in the world which is about a quarter of the world's population. They're in every continent and predominantly in Asia in terms of absolute numbers. But in terms of intensity of representation, it's the Middle East and North Africa where they are the most prominent. And there are 10 countries in which essentially Muslims represent 95% of the population. And they're shown on this slide. I don't know whether you can see it, the important point I want to make is that the green are the Shia Muslims and the blue are the Sunnis. And as I said, this dispute arose about succession after the death of the Prophet Muhammad and relations have been strained ever since. And right now there is a very serious and violent confrontation between the two branches of the House of Islam essentially driven between the enmity between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So the Shia sect is predominantly from Iran. And if you look at the next slide, you can imagine from the Gulf states through Iran and into Syria, the so-called Shia crescent. And this is, if you like, the red line which Iran will not let go of. And on the back of the Syrian civil war, Iran's fear was that the Sunni minority would get into power and they would lose their influence over Syria. And so Iran, particularly via its proxy Hezbollah, which is the Shia, very well-organized militia in Lebanon, are fighting very hard to ensure that Syria remains Shia and under Iran influence. Now Iran is a rich country, it is a proud culture, and it is fiercely independent. And we should have no doubt that it will continue this battle because 
At the heart of all of this is its influence in the Middle East and its great enemy, Israel. And we may say, sitting here, well, this whole thing about Sunni and Shia seems a bit academic, but remember our own history. It's not so many years ago that Catholics and Protestants were cheerfully killing each other. And so we must be careful, I think, to judge in terms of their own religious sects. It's interesting, isn't it? When you paint the picture of the Shia crescent, what does it cover? It embraces Saudi Arabia, which is where Sunni has its heart. Next slide. You saw the pictures, the moving pictures in the prayers, and here is my picture of the results of this extraordinary complexity, this extraordinary enmity, and these historic differences which translate into violence in so many different ways. The results are simply horrendous. We know for sure a quarter of a million people have died, a million are badly injured. And 12 million people are on the move. 12 million people moving. Why? Because they're afraid. Who knows how many have been trapped, traumatized, raped, and grieving. Next. And in the skies, planes drop bombs. Assad's planes, Russian planes... U.S. planes, and these are British bombers. Now, yes, they are carefully targeted. And yes, we have responsibilities to the wider community. And yes, we are a very small player. I have to say, I weep that as the U.K., we are part of the terror that is falling from the skies and feeding the ISIS propaganda. Next. And on the ground, the factions fight. This is brutal. None more so than with ISIS. Their cruelty is unspeakable. If you go on the web, you will find this slide. Think carefully before you look at the next one in the sequence. I must say, I couldn't sleep after seeing it. In Syria, they decapitate. In Libya, they crucify. Their end is a pure caliphate state based on their understanding of the Quran, and their means are extreme brutality. So people flee. They flee the bombs, the anarchy, and the scale is enormous. Next. I showed this picture at Christmas and I had just finished, uh, I just visited a refugee camp in the Bekaa Valley. And that's in Lebanon, where one quarter of the population of that country now comprises refugees. They are people like you and me. They are tradesmen, they are teachers, they're farmers and their families, and they long to go home. But they daren't. And who can blame them? For now, they simply seek to stay alive. And if you go to Jordan, the scale is even bigger. 
This is the Sitari refugee camp. I wrote down, as far as the eye can see. And I will be back there in two weeks' time. And I know the country is almost at breaking point with the millions and millions of people that have moved in and who are unable to support themselves. And some, of course, having fled ISIS and the bombs and the militias and found themselves in these camps where life is just about there, but not much more, choose to move. They choose to move, as they have always done in history. Despairing of peace, they head north. Next. I don't know whether you can see this, but it attempts to show the major routes by which people fleeing the fighting are moving into different parts of Europe. There are a hundred different ways they come by land and, of course, by sea across the Mediterranean. They move. And in moving, they have brought the problem to our door. And what was a Middle East problem is now very much a European one. Next. They come in waves, on tiny, tiny boats, overcrowded and scarcely seaworthy. It costs now well over £2,000 to buy a place on a boat like this. Rich people will hire the whole boat. That costs £100,000. So there are people making money out of this. But still they come thousands and tens of thousands and now hundreds of thousands of people. I remember Andy speaking movingly two weeks ago about his son Mark, who with other Marines are helping the rescue organizations seek to save those in the water, to get people onto dry land and into some sort of society which can look after them. Not all make it. Next. A picture speaks a thousand words. We know 5,000 have already died crossing the Med. Who knows how many more? Next. And those who make it will meet others in Europe, different parts of Europe. Of course, those they meet may not be refugees from, Europe, from Syria at all. They may be economic migrants from North Africa or even Central Africa. But they too are seeking escape from poverty and persecution. Like this family. And this is a family in the jungle. The jungle in Calais. Next. They seek a better life. And who are we to judge? The history of the UK has been one of invasions, occupations, and immigrations. Our nation is rich in diversity of race and religion and cultures. And yet somehow we see these differently. Next. The truth is that the numbers are beginning to overwhelm and facilities are stretched to breaking point. 
And many Europeans are worried. They're worried at the change. They're worried at the uncertainty. They worry that amongst the refugees there may be jihadists and extremists too. And so the barriers are going up right across Europe. Twelve months ago, the barriers were largely bureaucratic. You have to fill in a form. We have to know who you are. We have to know where you come from. We have to know where you are going. Next, that's not true anymore. The barriers of language and form filling have been replaced by fences and razor wire and dogs and guns. Next. Again, I don't judge. I don't know the situation in Bulgaria and Turkey and beyond. But I do think we have to look beyond the politics and the people traffickers and even the reasons why and look at the needs of people caught in no man's land in Europe or in the Mediterranean. It is winter and conditions are bad. Next. So what does the Bible say? Well, we heard the reading of the Great Commission. So that is the calling point for Mission Sunday. What does the Great Commission actually say? We are to go out. That's the first. We must not stay here in the warmth and joy of St. Saviour's. We are to go out to baptize, to teach. What are we to teach? Obedience to what Jesus said. That is what discipleship means, obedience. And what did Jesus teach? Well, this, the reading from Matthew 25 teaches that our calling and our responsibility is to those at the margins, the hungry, the sick, the orphans, the stranger, the stranger, the foreigner. And if you go to Leviticus, you will hear the same strength of calling. It is the hallmark of the kingdom that we welcome the stranger. It divides the sheep and the goats. And you may say, well, this man from Syria, this woman from Iraq is very different to us. But just think how different the Samaritan was from the Jew in the parable of the good Samaritan. But it's not just our calling and our responsibility. It is our blessing too. Welcoming the stranger is not meant to be a penitence. It makes us feel truly human. We feel at peace and we feel well. Shalom. And lastly, of course, Jesus was a refugee. He knew what it was to run in the night from a butcher. The butcher, of course, was Herod. Herod slaying the children. And Jesus had to run. And we have a special responsibility for sure to our brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted in the Middle East and not least in the camps by the overwhelming Muslim majorities. Next. I don't know how this will end. I pray it will, 
but I don't know. We had only this last week hopes that there might be a ceasefire, a truce. But the reality is that Assad does not want a truce, and nor do Russia. And certainly ISIS and Al-Qaeda don't. So it's hard to see that that will prevail. But the tide will turn. It always does. God will move. And when it does, four things I think are critical. We have to rebuild the infrastructure of the Middle East and how heartened I was that already last week in London, six billion pounds was pledged. We need far more, but it's a start. We have to bring Iran, Iraq and Syria into the international community. One of the real reasons behind this whole problem has been the ostracization of Iran for too long. They need to be part of the international community. We need information to counter the dreadful propaganda of ISIS. And we have to go back to Iran and Israel. So much of the underlying enmity derives from that relationship. And there will never be long-term peace in Syria and Iraq until that is addressed. So what can we do? Anne and I went to visit a refuge in Bombay. And on the door, they had a sign which said, push, pray, until something happens. And that's what we do. We must pray from our hearts. We desperately need God's wisdom and intervention. We must lobby, and there are lots of ways to do that. We must lobby for refugees. We must lobby for aid. We must lobby for the treatment of Christians, and Justin Welby is leading that. And personally, I would lobby to stop the bombing. We must stay involved. You can go on websites now to keep up to date and Open Doors and Sat7 and Tear Fund are great places to go. And if you can, give to them. Give especially to Christian charities. This is an opportunity for Christ's love to be shown to Muslims and people are being saved. And of course, we can act locally when we are involved ourselves here with people who come to us. Next. There is hope, and we can help, and I pray that God's light will shine. It is shining in the camps. I have been overwhelmed with admiration and respect for the churches in Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon who are rising to the task to minister to those in greatest need. And we, in turn, must support them. And above all, we must not harden our hearts. So let me pray. Dear Father, I do pray that our hearts may be open to your spirit, to hear your calling to go out and to teach and to care for the stranger. I pray for our response to this terrible crisis. Whatever part we may play, Lord, may we know your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.
I have overrun. Do we have five minutes? We have five minutes. So that was the most rapid thousand years of history of the Middle East that I've ever taken on. So you said that Russia uh, didn't want the war to end. Why, why is that? Um, I'm not a, an international expert, but I gather that Putin is a man who cares greatly about his own ego and greatly about the preeminence of the Soviet Union. And we've seen that in Ukraine and other parts of the world. He sees Russian influence as being greatly enhanced through Syria. He has had that relationship with Assad already for many years, and he wants to keep it. I'm not exactly sure why it is so important to them, but it certainly is. And I have a sense with Putin that just the fact that others want him to pull out will encourage him to continue at all costs, whether there is rational reason to do so or not. And right now, he is determined. And so even today, as we speak, the Russians are launching more attacks against opposition forces in Syria. And he will see, sad to say, I think that the current push for a ceasefire is an opportunity for him to gain advantage. Do you agree with the, effectively, the UK government's policy about refugees in terms of supporting them, I think, in, mainly primarily in the camps rather than encouraging people to, to come here? Well, I, I do, um, with, an, with a but. I think it's a great question, and I probably should have addressed it. Um, I very strongly feel the primary focus of what we do has to be in the Middle East. It is not going to help to move... 30 million people out of the Middle East into Europe. It will create untold problems for the Middle East as well as for Europe. So yes, we should do that. We have to make conditions in the Middle East better. We need peace so we can rapidly move people back to where they belong. And for many of them, this is not just their home. This is that precious Middle Eastern connection with the land of their ancestors. And that's where they want to go. Of course... The trick is, there are some who do not want to stay, and how do we deal with them? And we have to find, I think, across Europe, a better process than we currently have. I think it started with good intentions, and then, of course, the politicians became overwhelmed with the numbers, and electorates began to rise up and say, hang on, what are we doing? And we in the UK are somewhat privileged by, yet again, 22 miles of water. I think if we were sitting in France, we would probably think about this differently. Um, but yeah, I think that should be the primary focus. But the, the condition is that we have to share our part with other P European nations in absorbing a fair percentage of those who come. It simply won't work 
sending everybody to Berlin or Frankfurt or Stuttgart or Munich. That's just not going to work. Clive, could I just ask, you said you were encouraged, as I'm sure we all were, by the six billion that has been pledged yeah. within the last few weeks. Have you got any um, insight into if that money is being av made available now, the timing of it, and where it's going to be focused? Uh, nobody knows that. Um, w when these conferences take place, Chris, um, these numbers are pledged. Um, they may already uh, have been budgeted, they may be new to budget, they may be taken from other budgets, they may disappear next week. Um, but I was encouraged that people were prepared at least to recognise that this is going to be an important, well, not an important, the vital part to sustainable peace. Having secured a ceasefire, we have to move in. In my head, I have the Marshall Plan after Europe. This will need probably a trillion dollars to fix in terms of roads, housing, sewage, waterworks, electricity. If you talk to Iraqis or Syrians about the state of their country, they will tell you they were better off before the Arab Spring. Because the sewage did work, the schools did work. There was electricity. Yes, there was a bastard at the top, but you know what? For me down here, it was okay. All of that is gone. There is chaos. I mean, Syria is in complete meltdown. There is hardly any society as we know it. And it's going to take enormous amounts of money. But why wouldn't we do it? The world can afford it. I know we think that's an enormous amount of money. But if every country was prepared to chip in 6, 10, 20 billion, we could do it. And it will need that to rebuild. And that is how ISIS will disappear. ISIS is not simply a group of highly committed and violent extremists. It is an idea. It is an idea about Islam. It is an idea about God. And that has to be countered. And it will not eventually be countered by bombs or guns. It will be countered by love. Thank you. Thank you, Mike.